This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we have an in-depth interview with El Salvador's ambassador to the United States, Francisco Altschul. We'll discuss the international impact of U.S. immigration policies and reflect on the important political connections between Washington, D.C. and San Salvador. But first, Kurt Devine is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Ecuadorian President Rafael Correa won re-election by beating his seven opponents with about 56% of the national vote. Correa defeated his nearest rival, Guillermo Lasso, by more than 30 percentage points. Experts credit his resounding victory to the popularity of Correa's ambitious social programs and his support for the nation's poor. Correa addressed supporters on election night. The next four years will bring more dreams and more profound changes to the mother country. The best is yet to come. Long live the citizen revolution. Forty-nine-year-old Correa says in his coming term, he will seek to attract investors to Ecuador and diversify the economy away from reliance on oil exports. A delegation of seven U.S. lawmakers met with President Raul Castro this week in Cuba, but they failed to reach a deal to free prisoner Alan Gross. Cuban authorities detained Gross in 2009. He was convicted in a Cuban court of illegally importing Internet equipment under a U.S. State Department contract. Although the delegation sought to improve relations between the nations, the U.S. State Department says diplomacy will remain at a standstill until Gross is released. Cuban officials say they will free Gross only after Washington agrees to release five Cuban agents serving jail sentences in the U.S. Dissident Cuban blogger Ioanni Sanchez received mixed greetings when she arrived in Brazil to begin a world tour discussing the Cuban government and human rights. A group of about 20 protesters jeered Sanchez at an airport in the northern city of Recife by holding up signs accusing her of abandoning Cuba and working for the CIA. Pro-Cuban government activists later blocked the screening of a documentary that featured Sanchez at a museum in Brazil. The Cuban government had not allowed Sanchez to leave the island for more than a decade, but now she plans to visit a dozen countries on an 80-day speaking tour. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez made a surprise return home from Cuba this week after undergoing cancer surgery in December. Secrecy continues to surround Chavez's health, but political commentators say Vice President Nicolas Maduro could soon step into Chavez's role. Ecuadorian President Correa says he thinks Maduro is extremely capable of leading the nation. The International Criminal Police Organization, Interpol, arrested about 200 people in a crackdown on illegal timber trafficking throughout Latin America. Interpol officials investigated trucks, ships, and logging containers in 12 Central and South American countries. They seized about 2,000 truckloads of illegal timber and linked the trade to a rise in murders and corruption in forested areas. Experts estimate the illegal timber trade could be worth up to $100 billion worldwide. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. 
We're devoting our entire program this week to a conversation with Ambassador Francisco Altschult, El Salvador's ambassador to the United States. Welcome to Latin Pulse. Thank you very much, Rick, for this opportunity. You tend these days to have immigration on your mind. And so please tell us your views on what's going on in the United States regarding immigration reform. Uh-huh. Well, um, obviously, uh, immigration reform is something that is for the United States political system to define. Uh, having said that, uh, we as a country with over 2 million Salvadorians living here uh, are very much interested in this issue. And it's an issue that we share and that we support. Um, as I said, there's over 2, two million Salvadorians living here. Many of them are documented, are legal citizens. There are some who are not documented. And there are some who is a special kind that we refer to as the TPS population. TPS means temporary protected status. And it's uh, we have like uh, over 210,000 Salvadorians uh, who are benefited of this program. This means that... For 18 months, they are granted a uh, working permit, and they can uh, legally uh, live and work here. But this is a program that has to be renewed every 18 months. Salvadorians were granted this uh, benefit in back in 2001 after the huge earthquakes that occurred in our country. Uh, at this moment, uh, uh, they have gone through eight process of registration. We estimate that Salvadorans have paid in um, fees, in registration fees, over $600 million. Uh, we estimate that the, yes, these are people who are paying every year in taxes, probably as much as $800 million. These are people who, in order to maintain their TPS status, have to go through police uh, clearances and so forth, and they have to prove that they are law-abiding citizens. Um, these are people who have established their families here. They have daughters and sons who are American citizens. So we believe that these are people that should be, A, considered in any sort of immigration reform, and we believe that they should be given some sort of uh, a special consideration, given the characteristics that I mentioned before. So you're asking for them to be somewhere not at the end of the line. Exactly, because, you know, of course, uh, the, uh, the, the, it's, the process is ongoing, and there's still, uh, they have to be defined which are the, the conditions for all the 11 million immigrants to have a pathway to citizenship. But we believe that, you know, it's being said that they have to pay fines, that they have to pay back taxes, that uh, they have to go through security clearances. This is a population that has already done that. And that's how, that's why we believe they should be at the beginning of the line, to put it like that. El Salvador is not alone in asking for this. There are other governments in Central America also asking for yes, similar. Yes, in, in Central America, there's um, uh, Honduras with roughly 65,000 uh, people under TPS and Nicaragua with 3,000. But apart from Central America, we have Haiti, 
which was granted uh, TPS two years ago, and it's probably like 200,000, and then small numbers of uh, Syria and South Sudan and Somalia. We don't know the details yet of immigration reform yet in this country, and this is all going to be worked out in the next few months. So you're trying to raise awareness at this point, are you not? Yes, yes. Uh, We are, you know, basically telling me... uh, what I just mentioned, you know, this this group of citizens of uh, Central Americans that exist here, that they're residing here, that they have all these characteristics, and uh, our main concern is that they are not left uh, out of this process, and if possible, as we believe, that they should be given some sort of special treatment in that sense. Some conservative commentators have taken issue with the fact that your government and other governments are having a place at this discussion about immigration? Well, as I said uh, at the beginning of this conversation, we respect the sovereignty of the United States, and we we say this is the sole responsibility of the U.S. political system to define what kind of immigration reform they're going to have, you are going to have, and the conditions and so forth. So, I don't agree that we are uh, influencing or that we are lobbying. No, we are just uh, having people take notice of this this population that exists and that we believe that should be taken into account. I understand the sensitivities of this discussion, Um, but we also have to realize that immigration is not solely a domestic issue in the United States, that this has an impact on El Salvador, what we decide here, because of remittances and because of a large number of Salvadorans who are here. Oh, totally, totally. Um, as I mentioned before, there's over 2 million people, Salvadorians, living here. Um, in general, Salvadorians living abroad, but the vast majority live here in the United States, send over three, $3,000 million dollars in family remittances back to the country. So that's about $3 billion. $3 billion, exactly. This amounts close to 16 or 17% of the national GDP. This is by far the most important source of revenue for the country, more than any product that we export, produce, or whatever. So so Salvador, El Salvador exports labor in, in, in essence to in the essence, United States. That is true. That is true, and this was, and this was, um, if not a policy, but it was something that the previous governments accepted and, in in some way, uh, were satisfied with, because this is what makes the country uh, viable. <laughs> uh, with the new administration of President Fulens, we don't share this view. We think that uh, people migrate because they, haven't, they don't find the conditions and the opportunities in the country that they have the right to. There's no opportunities for jobs, for education, for health, so, so forth. So what we are trying to do is to create conditions, particularly in the rural areas, so that there are jobs, there's better education opportunities, health, housing, and so forth, uh, so that... Uh, Migration is not an obligation, that people are not forced to migrate, but that migration becomes an option. 
President Mauricio Funes, who is the first president of El Salvador to come from the left, yes. generally regarded as a center-left president. So he's much more concerned about the social standing of, of Salvadorans in their country. So there isn't this push factor out. Exactly. One of the characteristics of uh, President Funes' administration is that uh, the amount of resources that have been allocated from the government for social programs is uh, has, uh, unseen in our, in our history. Uh, now, you know, uh, programs that benefit the poor, the socially excluded, uh, the children, uh, is, uh, we're seeing things that have never seen, we've never seen before. In some ways, some would say that this is the outcome of what the FMLN, the, the party that President Funes represents and that you have been part of for a long time, ha- has fought for, for for many decades. Definitely, definitely. Now you have to, I'm sure you understand that this is a process, that you cannot make changes from one day to the other one. It is a, a complicated issue. But as President Funes said, what we are trying to do in this first administration, first period, is to uh, put on the foundations, the basis for a change that is going to become irreversible. El Salvador has seen many deportees come back from the United States during the Obama administration, also during the Bush administration. Has this caused some social upheaval in your country? Yes. Uh, you know that uh, one of the most important problems we are facing is the issue of the Maras, the famous uh, youth gangs. Or, and um, and uh, the origin of these gangs was precisely the city of Los Angeles, where uh, Salvadorians uh, joined there in gangs to protect themselves from the other gangs. And when they were deported back to El Salvador, that was the origin of the Mara Salvatrucha and the Mara Trece, no, and the Mara Dieciocho, which actually come from 13th Street and 18th Street in Los Angeles. MS-13. MS-13 and, 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 and ms Exactly. So, uh, now, of course, uh, there are, are conditions, objective conditions in El Salvador that, uh, that were a, a, a good... Uh, they provided the conditions for the Maras and the gangs to, to survive and to, to grow up. But uh, very importantly, uh, the breakdown of the family of the family system because of uh, many kids, their parents migrated to the States. They were left alone with the grandmother or whatever. They were alone by themselves. Uh, they had no, 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 no family structure. That was uh, a reason for joining the gangs, the lack of opportunities, of education opportunities, the lack of hope. These are all factors. But also, it starts, the origin of the gangs is in the United States. Uh, and uh, During the Civil War period? Uh, even before, even slightly before the Civil War, yeah. Because migration started even, uh, Salvadoran migration started before the Civil War particularly to California, which is where we have the large, and Los Angeles, where we have the largest concentrations of Salvadorans. Um, now, this process of deportation, as you mentioned, has increased, has continued and has increased. Um, and uh, just to give you a, an, a, an example, a data, uh, if we compare the deportations of January 2013 with 
the deportees in, during January 2012, there has been an increase of 41%. This means that in 2012, over 20,000 Salvadorians were deported. The majority of them uh, were non-criminals. This means that the only crime was that they didn't have a document. But uh, there were others that were deported who had criminal records. And one understands that, I mean, in terms of the policy of a country. But um, the deportation or forceful deportation of so many people uh, whose only crime was coming here uh, to look for better uh, life opportunities, we think is something that hopefully will be resolved with this process of the uh, immigration reform. I'm not sure many in this country understand the percentage of the Salvadoran population that has left during these past decades and are here in the United States now. Well, in general, um, Salvadorians living abroad are close to 3 million people out of a population of 7 point something in El Salvador. In the United States, uh, estimates are around 2, 2.2 at the most uh, million Salvadorians living here in the United States. So yes, it is a very significant, uh, significant uh, uh, percentage. We're speaking today with Ambassador Francisco Altschul, El Salvador's ambassador to the United States. We'll be back in a moment to continue our conversation. I want to finish school. And then go to college. To be able to graduate. And have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Ambassador Francisco Alshul, El Salvador's ambassador to the United States, is our guest today on this very special program. Um, we were talking a lot about immigration before the break. There are various people from various political backgrounds here in the United States who have come from El Salvador, including those from the far right, some would say, who are hiding their past, involved with various types of human rights violations during the Civil War period. Mm -hmm. Recent case of Colonel Inocente Montano in Boston. And, and I'm wondering if you have some, some thoughts about what the United States should be doing in trying to help El Salvador resolve that period of time regarding human rights and regarding those who've come here not to face what they may face if they were still back in San Salvador. Mm -hmm. Well, as, uh, as you know, uh, last month we remember the 21st anniversary of the signing of the peace accords, which ended the civil war in El Salvador and which created uh, fundamental changes in our country and in our society and political system. Uh, we still have a lot of challenges things uh, to, that are still not good and we have to, to improve. But um, some important things change. Among them, the situation of human rights. Uh, 30 years ago or 25 years ago, we were known as one, you know, we were famous for the violation of human rights. We were considered in the country, one of the countries in the world with more human rights violations. 
Now it's not the case. That is not the case. Uh, we're facing a different type of violence now. We were talking about it, the gang-related, organized crime, and drug we can trafficking. Get back to that in a bit. But in terms of, um, of assassinations, torture by the state apparatus on civilian innocent population, that, does lo- that, that doesn't longer, that does not longer exist. So that has been a, one of the major improvements. Having said that, there is an issue that is still unresolved in that area. And it is the issue of impunity. After the peace accords, um, a blanket amnesty was provided to everybody that participated in in the war, and uh, that included a lot of uh, military officers who were responsible for hundreds of uh, assassinations and disappearances. And they were, uh, because of the amnesty, they were uh, given a free ride. Um, so, in a sense, a lot of people are saying justice has not been made yet. And not only justice, but knowing what happened is something that has not been done yet. Uh, the government of President Funes has apologized publicly in the name of the state for all the violations of human rights and has particularly signaled the assassination of Monsignor Romero, the killing of the Jesuits, the massacre of El Mosote, among others. So there is some sort of a moral reparation, if you want, but still nobody who has been, who was guilty of this, has been brought to justice. That, I think, is the most important pending issue. This is something that, as uh, many uh, cases in Latin America shows us it's a process. It's also it's something that cannot be, in a way, um, imposed. Society has to go through this, and as we saw in Chile, in Argentina, when ultimately it was the armed forces who, after 20 years or whatever, asked for forgiveness and recognized that as an institution they had been responsible. And then what has happened in other Latin American countries is that individuals have been brought to justice by uh, victims or by relatives of victims and so forth. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, We have a very important issue case, which is that um, uh, the relatives of some of the Jesuit priests who were assassinated and who were uh, Spanish citizens have asked for a trial and the Spanish judge has uh, demanded that uh, this uh, group of the members of the high command of the army at that time be extradited to Spain. Uh, the Salvadorian uh, judicial system has denied the extradition. So, uh, as I said, this is just an example of things that still we have to deal with as a society. This, this case of Colonel Montano, who's accused of being part is, of the Jesuit part, orders. He's part, exactly, of that group. Of uh, He was a, a, a ranking officer in the high command. And now he faces charges here in the United States for lying... For depor- a deportation, yes. Uh, you know, again, uh, this is something that... Uh, U.S. authorities will have to decide. I understand it's a decision of the judge whether he is, um, he could be deported. He could, I think there's three options. He could serve his sentence here. 
he could be he could be sent back to El Salvador or he could be sent back to Spain. I find this conversation very interesting because you know better than anyone 20 25 years ago in the United States we would not be talking about this sort of justice. Um we would not be talking about um the United States possibly having links to these human rights problems and now the United States contributing maybe to this very slow process of justice. Yes, but actually, and I forgot to mention this, a very positive uh, um, development with uh, the Obama administration, with President Obama's administration, is a policy that the U.S. will not support uh, known violators of human rights uh, to remain in this country. So in that sense, and this was part of your original question, what could the U.S. do in the case of General Montano? I mean, uh, the fact that he finally was captured um, and is undergoing a trial is a, a step forward, perhaps a small step, but a step forward in the implementation of his policy of not supporting the 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 residency of uh, human rights violators, uh, violators here. Let me pivot a bit now, and I know we've mostly been talking about immigration. Um, we would be remiss, though. We, we mentioned the importance of President Funes historically in El Salvador. And I, I wonder if you could just give us a few moments of your point of view about how important this period is for El Salvador, having its first peaceful change of government to a left-wing government in Salvador's history, I believe. Yes, um, except for a, an occasional coup d'etat <laughs> in our past history. But no, and, and you know, we're talking about the peace accords, and I said it had great improvements in the human rights issue. We have had enormous improvements in terms of the democratization of the country uh, in that sense, and, and the fact that now, after 20 years of uh, conservative arena governments in El Salvador after the peace accords, we have for the first time a government in which the FMLN, the former guerrillas, are part of, is a proof of that uh, advance that we have done in terms of our political system. Um, now I think that the uh, significance of President Funes' administration is that he has shown, just like uh, uh, President Lula did in Brazil, that you can become, be a left government, provide for the poor in a democratic framework and maintaining good relationship with the United States. And is there a way that he can also then be a bridge to get the United States to talk to the other parts of the left in Latin America? Yes, yes, I think it, it, um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a role that uh, in some way has been played uh, and it's an important role, and I think that's uh, another reason why it is in the best interest of the United States as well to maintain, as they have done in the case with uh, President Funes, uh, uh, some sort of a privileged relationship. It's interesting, you know, when, when uh, President Funes won, everybody, a lot of people in El Salvador and also here, said, you know, this is going to be a disaster, uh, this government is going to, and the government of the United States, they're not going to go well together. People started to say the U.S. is going to deport all the Salvadorians, and it's going to be an economic chaos, etc., etc. 
the government of El Salvador is going to go all the way to the left with all the other countries. That didn't happen. Quite the contrary. Um, the, we have established a, a, a special alliance with uh, uh, President Obama's administration. So we have had enjoyed a, a very good relationship. Uh, President Funes was here. He had visited with President Obama. So there has been a, a very good, uh, a very good relationship. And we hope, really, that regardless what happens uh, in in the 2014, uh, that we will continue to have uh, such a good relationship. Ambassador Francisco Alchul. El Salvador's ambassador to the United States. Thank you so much for being our guest today on Latin Pulse. It's been my pleasure, Rick. Thank you very much. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.